Welcome back. It's Lily, High on Life, and today we have a really special guest. I'm honoured to have Dieter Gould with me here um, in my home. Dieter, welcome to Lily, High on Life. I'm high on life too. <laughs> I'm high on life too. I'm and happy to be here. And that's one of the reasons that I wanted to speak to you because in addition to being a, a very successful businesswoman and mother and, and wife and philanthropist, and um, at, you are now, um, well, you had an 85th birthday a couple of years ago, so yes, we'll leave it at right. that. <laughs> and you're still extremely active and extremely, yes. and living an extremely enjoyable life from what I can see, yeah. uh, as well as from what I hear. So tell us a little bit about what you do today that you really enjoy. Well, I wake up every morning and think, what good things can I do today? So it so happens that always something good happen, happens in my life. Because I'm positive and I look forward to the day and I'm an optimist and I don't dwell on negativity, don't meet with people who are negative, don't do what other friends of mine of my age do, there's nothing that I cannot do. And so things come my way. And I love that attitude and I believe that very, very much. So they say that as you get older, your attitude, I, as people know who listen to the show, is really important. But also, you do get a little more tired. It is a little yes. harder to get up in the morning. Yes. How do you push past that? How do you keep well, that attitude? four times a week, my alarm clock goes at 6 o'clock because at 6.45 I go to walk. And so getting up early is not difficult. It's true, I get tired at night and I have early nights now. Uh, but that's just a fact of life. But in the meantime, I fit in a lot into a day. What motivates you to set the alarm at six o'clock to walk? <laughs> well, I wouldn't be meeting my walking group if I wasn't there at quarter to seven. So it really is people in your life that motivate you to yes, keep going? Yes, I can't, I can't be without people. I'm not a, a lonesome person. So you... You're not uh, working anymore, obviously, but we'd, I do want to talk about your gallery and some yes. of the other things you did later. Tell me about the people that surround you today in your life and the things that you do that, that fill your days. Well, as I told you, I have a walking group and there's about 14 of us and uh, there's always somebody, every one of them has something to offer. So you gain from that and care and about women? each other. Only women. But I also play lawn balls and occasional tennis. And, uh, and I'm very active in charity work. Mm. I'm currently JNF Collector of the Year for Australia. Not Victoria, wow. but Australia. So if you have a luach, my photo is in there. Um, How did you get involved with JNF to start with? Because it's a wonderful organisation and there are so many. Yes, there are. Um, first of all, my reason that I stayed alive was to do good for Israel. 
I think if we would have had an Israel, there would have been no Holocaust and I'm a child survivor of the Holocaust. So anything and everything that I, wherever I could help, JNF is not the first thing that I was involved with. I was involved with WITSO. I was WITSO president so many years ago. And even my children used to say, is the cake for us or WITSO? <laughs> Before they bit into it. Uh, JNF, I believed, was uh, the most important organization when the state started because uh, Israel was strewn with rocks. It wasn't the land of milk and honey. They cleared the land, and some land is still with mounds of rocks next to it to show what it was like. They made, did all the infrastructure, roads, electricity, whatever was needed was done by the JNF. They bought the land. So I always respect those early people who, who were so dedicated. What I do now is not, nothing to compare to the Chalutzim who went there which is a shame that it never happened, that we, should, we, we never got to live in Israel. You um, published a book yeah. last year yeah. called The Girl in the Lion's Mouth, Memoir of a Child Survivor of the Holocaust. So just briefly, take us through your story very briefly um, and how you survived and what you went through and how you came to Australia. Well, it's a long story, but I'll try to uh, concise it. In the book at the end, there is a, a, a book showing that states there once was a Jewish town called Dunoserdehe. That's where I come from. We lived there the way we thought it will be when we get to Israel. We were pious. We observed all the holidays. We made fun out of everything. We had relatives in every street, celebrated uh, all the Chagim. And it was a charmed life. Then, uh, and I went to Jewish school. Uh, then my father got worried because our relatives in Slovakia already had bad times. And he thought that he shouldn't stay in that little town where everyone knows us. Um, he was picked on because he was well-known, and once there was a, a claim against him that he said something against Hungarians. For being Jewish. For being Jewish, and he had to fight it in court. And so he decided we'll go to Budapest where nobody knows us and we'll get lost in the crowd. And it was a very wise decision because in my hometown, not one Jewish child survived from the Jewish school that I went to. Uh, so it was your parents and your sister? You had yes, a I had my younger sister and we moved there. And first everything was fine. I went by tram to the Jewish school there. And life was beautiful. On summer holidays I went to be with my auntie, my father's sister. And uh, um, life was couldn't be nicer. We were close and happy. How old were you when you noticed when things started getting bad? Well, and first there was no school anymore for Jewish children. Not, not, not just any school. 
The biggest shock I had was when we had to start wearing the yellow star. Me personally, I was branded. I felt that anybody can do anything to me, um, and I didn't feel safe anymore. Then things got worse and worse, and people had to move into yellow star houses where there were already a lot of Jews living, and they crammed us together. Um, my father was always willing to help, and he had a very good friend from school who was an amazing woman. She was blonde and beautiful, lived outside the ghetto and inside the ghetto, and could help people if she had wherewithal, things to bribe with. And my father could always get her things to bribe with. He had a box hidden in a building uh, not far from where she worked out of the glass house, and he used to put the box on his shoulder and said, uh, delivery, and it was true. He was bringing her something. All the other people were standing there waiting for some sort of health papers or somewhere to And leave. you were aware of all of this? I knew what my father was doing, yes. So... Um, do you remember feeling scared at the time or no. hopeful or you still put a positive slant on it? I wasn't scared as long as I was with my parents. And I wasn't scared after either. We didn't have the, the um, luxury of being scared because if you were not with your mind set that you're going to survive this, you didn't have a chance. Yeah. I never, ever thought that I will not survive, not for a moment. I didn't cry for my mother when I was hiding by, by, with her by ourselves. Those were luxuries that we just didn't do. You just thought of the next minute what you're going to do. A day was so long you cannot imagine. So it was problem solving that your mind right. was doing, Mama, not fear or no, worry. No, no fear, no. Also, I believe that my father will always help me. That's beside the point. It wasn't, it wasn't a realistic uh, thought because much as he would have liked to, everybody wanted to look after their family. But he went about and he used to take things to the Sarah Stern. And one day when he was bringing her something, she said, listen, it's a problem. The children have to be hidden. And she instructed my father to bring us on a certain day uh, to her office. And I had a very good girlfriend that I made in the, in the building that um, we lived in, in the Yellow Star House. And I asked my father if, uh, if he would find them, her and her little brother, the space too. What we did together was we made a bazaar. We worked for months to raise money for needy children. And when we were ready, we uh, put everything in on my girlfriend's two little children's tables down in the, in the building, a four-story building, which was now crammed with Jews. And they came down, and after we put the placard up, and they came down, and they inundated us. This, we sold everything. <laughs> it was incredible. So you were fundraising from an early age. <laughs> that was my first fundraiser. But you see, 
on reflection, I go back and see how all my life I've been, I've been looked after because of this trait of mine. There was a reason for my life. Yes, and your attitude, you just, you got what you expected to get. Sometimes might have taken a little know, longer. I didn't know how, how things will pan out. None of us knew what lies in things. Mm. Uh, things change every minute. But I love the fact that you said it was a luxury to worry and be upset. Yeah, you, it never It helps. was a luxury. That never You helps. had to find something to actually physically do. Yeah. So when my father came, uh, because we had so much money, we didn't know what to do. We thought we'd make two pangas, and we made 200 pangas, which is a fortune. <laughs> so we halved it. She gave her side to a Jewish orphanage, and I wanted to take it to the Jewish communal center. So when my father had leave of absence from Munkasogalot, is what the Hungarian males were called up to, Arbeitslager, and uh, I went to the uh, Jewish center with him, and there he met a, a colleague of his who was in his squadron, but he was sent to the Russian front. And he came back so gaunt, you can't imagine. And they stopped to talk to each other. You see, my father did everything not to be sent to the Russian front. Mm. And uh, when they said goodbye, you know how in Europe men shake hands, I noticed that my father had money in his hand when he shook his hand, but when he took his money hand away, there was no money. Mm. Wordlessly, it was done. And that time I had very, very good memory for faces, for people, if I met somebody once, always remembered them. And that was all, we went in, we did what we wanted, and then um, this uh, friend of my father, she found us a hiding place. At, on the outskirts of Budapest, there was a hospital being built. Uh, the owners of the hospital was a Jewish doctor and a non-Jewish doctor, and he agreed that, we, that my, the Jewish doctor will keep this to hide Jewish children. Outside, it looked like it hasn't been finished yet. The rubble was there, and there was no one else around. There was a uh, um, monastery in the distance that we could see at night. So she wanted us to go there. So we came. We were walking to her office, um, and suddenly my father said, "You stay here. I'm afraid I'm going to be arrested." You keep walking to that building there. If they take me, you go in and ask for this lady. So then was the first time I was ever scared. Because mm. I thought, I won't be able to be quiet if they drag my father You were with away. your mother and your sister as no, well? No, my mother didn't come. My sister and my two friends. Mm. Anyway, he wasn't arrested, thank God. And uh, they put us in a taxi and sent us off. We were sitting on top of each other. It was at night, so no mm. one would notice us. And we went to this this uh, hiding place. I won't go into it, but we were very fortunate. For a few months, we were hiding. Then we were discovered and were marched to the ghetto. Mm. And so 
a lot of these stories you go into in detail yes, in your detail, book. Of and before you wrote the book, did you did the writing the book help you bring out all these memories or did you no, have them and did you talk to your children or anybody my else? My children about it knew before? all about everything. I'm not one of those people who held it in. I believe the children should know and then they won't be imagining things that never happened. So you talked about your experiences yes. and everything. And then how did the book come about finally well, at I've last? I always wanted to do it, but I was always busy with life. I, besides that, I had a difficult life and I had to get on with it. And there's nothing like hardship to make you strong. Yes. And uh, always when I was down at my lowest, that's when I really... Found the strength. Found the strength. And, and how did you come to Australia? With great difficulty. Um, if I have any resentment, I have resentment only for the Americans because my mother came from Vienna and one of her brothers and one sister in 1939 when they had a window of opportunity went to America and sent papers to us. In 1941, we received an affidavit with a number, and we had to wait for that number to come up. Four years passed from 41 to 45, struggling to survive, and all four of us survived. Very lucky. Very, very. And then, still they wouldn't give us a permit. From 1945 to 1948, when a friend of my father sent papers from Australia, we chose to come here. A year later, the American permit came, but by then they could keep it. You already. You've got to believe in bus share it a little bit. Oh, as absolutely, well. absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. And there was a lot that went on. We watch, Mum and I watch the History Channel and everything a lot, and it's just yes. terrible. I terrible. know, I know, but. So the pity of it all about the Berlin Jews. How old were you when you came to Australia? Fourteen and a half. And that was a very hard time. Fourteen and a half is difficult age anyway, but what you'd been through. What, what did you think when you landed in Australia? I hated it. I only wanted to go to Israel. All my uh, compatriots from my hometown, which we went back to after the war, uh, as we didn't want to live under the Russians. Um, they all left for Israel. I had no one here. We couldn't afford for me to go to school. And I went to work straight away. Everything that you had gone through and experienced, which I hope people will find your book and buy it so they can read about it in detail, but with everything that your parents had gone through, what changes did you see in your parents? Because you, you were very unusual and very lucky that you were yes, still yes. together, but there must have been a toll that was paid. Well, my mother said that after the war, people came to visit the intact family. Strangers came to see us, four people in all different places. Uh, Fortunately, my parents had a blessed marriage. They were madly in love with each other all their life. So that gave them strength. I can see a lot of people who 
were unhappy, they passed on the unhappiness to their children. And uh, I was fortunate that that didn't happen to me. We just worked together. Dad couldn't do physical work, so Mum and I went to factories. And while my father established a wafer manufacturing company, eight manufacturing wafer biscuits. Oh. Eight months after we landed in Melbourne, we had a factory in Abbotsford. Wow. Couldn't produce enough. And my father brought his car with him. The Škoda, the first Škoda in Australia was our car. How did he manage to do well, that? We escaped across the border once we had papers for Australia. Didn't mean that the Slovaks were going to let us out. And one way was that my mum, my sister and I went on a train and went to this border town in the Czech part. And my father drove with his chauffeur from business to the border. And he bribed someone there and he let us through, car and all. Onto the ship and everything? Not to the ship. We drove. We didn't know how to get to Australia. <laughs> we drove through Germany. We went into some displaced people's place and they told us that the place to go to Australia is from France. But we drove to Switzerland first, stayed six weeks there, and then to France. And my father was very proud to say that the traffic stopped for us in <laughs> Paris because he didn't know what a roundabout was, and he just went straight. <laughs> so he was in such a hurry to come to Australia that we actually flew but he put the car and some goods on a sh ship and it came here. And that was our luck because for two years you had to wait for a car in Australia in those days. Wow. And your dad was obviously an entrepreneur and yes. a very smart man. Yes. From what you described previously. So um, to come to Australia, did he know anybody here? How did he choose biscuits? <laughs> <laughs> because he overheard some cousins of him saying, that someone came to Melbourne and they're making biscuits and they're doing well. My father wanted us to make shirts. I had to learn how to make a shirt. I went to shirt factories because my father thought, well, a man needs a shirt, and so that's what we will do. But then midstream we changed. But biscuits, they eat faster than shirts. Very good, it was. <laughs> and he, so he developed that business, and that's how you managed to survive and do well here and then you did very well i worked two shifts a day data you know today we have such amazing technology and you do email still and you've got yes. one of a smartphone and everything every else <laughs> can you maybe just fill in a little gap of and i know you were just 14 or less than 14 but how do you find today we can find everything immediately how do you even find your way? You said we, we, you had the papers for Australia, but you didn't know how to get to Australia. How does that even happen? Well, we went on the autobahn, there were signs, and we followed them and went to Zurich. You just found a way yes. anyway. Yes. So, and my um, father was not a good driver. <laughs> and so, but he had a chauffeur. Well, no, he stayed back in Czechoslovakia. Czechoslovakia. Yeah. So when so you came here and you found the Jewish community and you found work. 
And then you didn't go back to school, you just started working? No, that was a little bit difficult because I joined a youth group called Hayeled and I became friendly with the uh, uh, president and uh, uh, I felt very out of it because my skirts were short (laughs) and I felt that... You know, I'm a baby compared to them. And later on, they told me that I was the sophisticated. <laughs> but uh, um, I'd meet, meet with the group sometime on a Shabbos, but uh, that was all. So you remained religious once you came here? No, no. That world stopped. That world died. You were just the body. Yeah. And your parents found their group of friends or people that they with were with from their work or from a community? No, or? no, there were a lot of people from our part of the ah. world here and uh, they've made friends with them. And then, so it took you a couple of years before you met your husband? Yes. So you were still very young? I was very young, I was 16 and a half and... Uh, and I got married at 18 and a half and had three children in quick succession. <laughs> so that really was a joyful. It was, it was. By then I overcame all this uh, uh, hardship. But I, uh, I always regretted not living in Israel. So you obviously instilled Zionism into your children. Yes, and uh, and my father admitted he was sorry we didn't go. Except Israel wasn't created yet. I celebrated the, the state of Israel's creation in Paris. Wow. On the way to <laughs> Australia. How it's yes, it's a day everybody remembers. Yes. yes. And the stories around it. So you're in Australia, you've met your husband, you've got your kids, and you've got three children yes. that you need to bring up. Were you, did you have to work as well? What was No, your... in those days we didn't work if we had children. It wasn't done. The husband brought home the money. Uh, it was beneath them if their wife had was to working. Work. And so I concentrated on what I can do well. And, uh, and that's when I started helping people who were worse off. And mainly originally through Witzel, as I said, we always raised more money than we undertook. And we made it out of nothing. Somebody Fantastic. had plums and someone brought sugar and this one brought jars. And we, had, we, had, uh, we went uh, collecting from factories and used to have a, a big uh, bazaar in uh, um, the town hall in Chapel Street. And we raised a lot of money. It was really wonderful. So philanthropy was one of the first things that the, you did? Always, always. That's not all. I, we, we had a group called Women Caring for Women, which was also amazing. We supported women in Haifa who were in great need of help. When was your first trip to Israel? Oh, that was terrible. It wasn't for 17 years that I first came to Israel. And it was for the bar mitzvah of my oldest son, John. And my father paid for the whole family to go and have the bar mitzvah there. 
wonderful occasion it was to go for huh? yes yes and by then I learned Hebrew because the kids went to Mount Scopus and I felt I needed to help and so I learned when I arrived I could speak Hebrew <laughs> and what what else do you remember from that trip about Israel and landing in Israel well it was an incredible story because I always believed the old adage that we used to talk about that when I come to Israel, I'll kiss the ground and I'll drop dead. That's what I Why thought would dead? happen. Because that's what they used to say. When you come to Israel, you'll kiss the ground and drop dead. So we went to Israel and apparently there were two boys on, on the flight coming for their bar mitzvah. So our relatives were waiting upstairs at the airport and they called out Johnny to see which one is my son. And so instead of looking down, I looked up and I didn't die. <laughs> Thank God. <laughs> Thank God. So, but you did eventually um, start your own business. Yes. And how did all of that happen? When I left my first husband, I was penniless. And... Uh, no experience since a young girl, no credentials except that I was honest. So I told my girlfriends, ask around and see if there is a job available. It's a long story, so I won't go into it. I had three offers, three people that I rang. The first one didn't know that I was in trouble and he thought maybe I want to start a jewelry shop and be a competition. Uh, he said he let me know in a couple of days and he didn't. And then there was a job I rang up, it was in an art gallery and the owner was Hungarian. And uh, because I could speak Hungarian, this was a big plus that I had. And um, he didn't mince any words, he just said, my name is Edith, and uh, he couldn't say it. So he said, what else can I call you? I said, you call me what my family calls me, Dita. And uh, he said, good, when can you start? This was Friday, I think. And he said, can you start Saturday? I said, yes, and it was done. And the first one rang on that same Friday, and he said, I heard what's happened to you and I would like you to start. And I was to be manager of a jewelry store in Glen Ferry Road. Wow. And I said, no, I can't because I accepted another job. He said, but I was first. And have you started yet? I said, no, tomorrow. I said, he said, well, come to me. I said, once I gave my word, I don't break mm. it. And I rude the day. It was a terrible job that I had, terrible job. Mm -hmm. I didn't realize I would only get a commission. It was a new shop in a new area. Nobody came in and I was very miserable because I needed to be between people and like this I was sitting on my own. So I didn't make the right decision I felt, but I stuck with it and I learned to love it. I had a natural instinct for it, my boss told me that what I feel for the paintings, you can't learn from books. Yes, and you need to in the art world. Yes. So I worked there for a while, and then uh, 
he he went away for 18 months and when he came back I started on my own mm. from home by then I had a fantastic reputation and even now 40 odd years later I cannot just go into an art gallery but a antique shop in the country and if I say I'm Dita Gould they know me. Everybody knows you for that. <laughs> you really did very So very I did well. what my father wanted. He said there's only one thing you can leave behind and that's your good name. You've done that <laughs> wonderfully. So Dita if you, if you don't mind just um, going back for a minute. You know getting divorced in those days was not an not easy decision of, to no. make. Um, were your parents supportive of you? And My um, father had died by then. I wouldn't um, have done it in his life. Did yes, he know I'm, you were unhappy? Well, he could see, yes. But he didn't suggest... Not the unhappiness, he could see the problem. The problem was alcoholism. Mm. He could see that very clearly. So what goes through your mind? You're a woman with three children. Yes. And you, have, you know you have to do something that's going to be very difficult. What was it that motivated you that actually got you to do it? Because a lot of people live in those situations for a long, long time without Well, I did. I lived in it far too long. But I could see that unless I get out of it, I felt that I was down a deep hole. And if I leave it any longer, I can't climb out of it. So it was really that problem solving yes. again, realizing that yes. you had to do something. I was told many something. times by experts to leave. Yeah, yeah. It's it's and a lot of what this show is about is is helping people find the motivation to do something different, like yes. leave or change. Yes, or... Well, I had to earn a living. Mm. And then also, it's you know. Whatever choice you make, it's always a good choice because you don't know what would have happened if you would have gone to the jewellery shop, for example, or if something else. I never would have, have regrets. Yes. I don't have regrets. Only one regret that I didn't get to live in Israel. Yeah. And last year, when it was still possible to go, I went to live there for five weeks and I felt like a local. Fabulous. Went around on buses. Well, Alavai, when we, you can travel again, yes. you can go for five months or six <laughs> months and well, really feel good. I still want to see the new Israel Museum that they're building, if that's possible. It really, you know, Israel is a place that is different from any other place For in us. the world. And the feeling that you have yes. when you're there is something that you can't explain to anybody. It just is. Yes. And it's not just the people and it's not just the land and it's not just the, it's it's a mixture of everything together. That's right. You know, I'd stopped telling my relatives when I was coming because usually it was two, three, four o'clock in the morning and they would all be there to me. I know, I have a cousin like that. So no matter what, once I refused to tell her my flight number, so she mm. rang my children in Australia and to there find. she was. <laughs> well, I got a taxi driver. I managed to sneak in one time 
And he looks at me and he takes my face and he goes, Azimotic, what other country in the world would you accept? Some people don't understand this that nowhere do you find people so warm. Yes, absolutely. And thank God you've still got time to live there, this Huntington Swansea. (laughs) It will have to be in an old people's home if I do. (laughs) Dita, um, you have three children, but you also have a lot of grandchildren and great-grandchildren already as well. Talk to me a little bit about what it's like when when you're with your children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren, and you think about what you went through and where you came from and the life you have now. Well, it's very hard to define that because uh, everyone takes it differently. I just act my natural self. I talk about things. Uh, My children tell me, you've been in Australia longer than anywhere else. You're an Australian. And... uh, why do you still feel a foreigner? Uh, I'm no longer a foreigner, and in the book I describe what actually made me become an Australian. Even though I'm the most proud of this country, and I used to have a lot of occasion in the gallery where I used to have big discussions with Australians who didn't appreciate the country that they have. In Melbourne, it was the upside down Yarra River. So I had to tell them that the Danube doesn't flow blue either. Uh, they didn't like our theater. I said, well, you're wrong. Our theater is as good as anywhere else. First, they didn't appreciate art, Australian art. And that's all we sold, only Australian art. And I would explain to them what there is about Australian art and also how well we have it documented, better than elsewhere. So if you're interested, don't knock it, read about it. So this was way before Aboriginal art. This was Australian art. That's right, it was, yes. Um, I'm glad you mentioned Aboriginals because I'm very, very uh, fond of Aboriginal culture and try to do as much as I can to change this denigration of a people whose land this is. And I'm successful. That's wonderful. So you're on a couple of committees and boards and um, to do with art or other things as well? No, no, just their rights. Do Do you feel that there is today still discrimination? 100%. Really? In fact, they're in total denial of what was done. They're changing history to suit themselves. There's a lot of changing of history going on around yes. the world, and yes. uh, Australia is no different from anywhere else, but that's a whole subject unto itself. Exactly. What, um, when you were writing the book and yes. when you were doing that, what came out of it for you? What is what you, you got to tell your story, you got to have your memories. Was there something else that that you realised you still needed to do or to accomplish? Well, um, I'm used to talking about my story because I work for Courage to Care and we go out to schools uh, to tell young people about the Holocaust. 
and uh, then we discuss it and uh, we revert it to today's world about bullies and how not to be bullies and how easy it is to use the telephone that is sitting in your lap and call for help and not watch things like that occurring. Be an upstander, not a bystander. Courage to Care is a wonderful organisation which in addition to creating relevance for today, um, it teaches people to do what you do best, yes. be proactive. That's right. And uh, actually next month, uh, for the first time, I'm going to Mount Scopus to speak to Jewish students. A hundred in each class, two classes I'm doing in one day. So it's not like it's you think the Holocaust is the same for everybody. It's a th we have things in common, yet each story is different. And gathering things, so I've left a lot of things out of the book because I was just telling it to my granddaughter Anna and she just typed it and I didn't and do it And it can't be a thousand page book. No. <laughs> and also even this week I went to see a GIF movie about a Jewish woman in Auschwitz who lived with a Nazi officer. And uh, it's beautifully done, it's a true story. And she actually got him to help one of her sisters who were already in the crematoria, got her sister out. So she felt that she did the right thing by being with that man and he was a nice man to her. What yeah. it was like to others, she couldn't help. And as it was with a lot of couples, people ostracized them after the war. She had some of that and some who were on her side. Many years went by, suddenly she, she married and had children in Israel. And she gets a letter from this, this uh, young woman who is the daughter of the man she lived with in the Auschwitz, on behalf of her mother, asking her to come back to testify on his behalf because he was being sentenced. So a whole lot of them went back and they, um, were, they gave testimony and he didn't go to jail. And then I remembered a story about my father telling me how he went to court after the war to save a man because he was driving a car all through the war. They thought he's an SS man. But that man actually was the minister for textiles and he personally helped my father and mother and for a while they could live in his flat in Budapest, a little flat. And uh, it was only when they went back because there was a cleaning woman and my mom overheard her say to the neighbors, it seems like someone's living here, that he, that he, uh, uh, that they left the place, never went back. But then when they took him to court, and my father said, yes, he drove a car. He was a minister for textiles. I, was a, I had a textile business and I, the Jew, sat in the car. It's, it's really, in judgment of other people is a really interesting topic in itself because there is nothing that's truly black and white. No, 
not being disclosed. Of course, there are people who did the most horrendous things working in um, camps, but those people also had moments of kindness as well. So do you, it's, what do you take, what do you see? I wouldn't what know you... what I would say if I was asked to be in such a position. It sounds like an interesting film at the film festival. Very do you remember good. what it's called? Um, Love It Isn't. Interesting. They, they always have such a wonderful, wonderful. program at yes. The, uh, yes. the film festival. And yes. I'll have to look that one up too. Dieter, it's been absolutely wonderful talking to Thank you. And you, I know Lily. we can keep talking for a long time. Um, just very quickly, and I've really only got a minute or two, just tell me a little bit about, for people who have the time to volunteer and to help, you're such, a, you've, it's been so much a part of your life. Um, tell me a little bit about what you get out of it and, and to encourage others to also jump in. There are so many avenues open. There are soup kitchens. Beth Weitzman has lots of work for people who want to put letters into envelopes. Finding out who is in need and giving surreptitiously. Uh, there is such a need, we are so lucky. We have everything here, but not everyone. Mm. And there's always something and see else what you can, you can do, do. someone else. Watching TV at home gets you nothing. Yes. You get a lot. You get a lot more out of volunteering That's right. than than what you're giving to anybody if, else. If you would know what experience I had today already, how much I could help somebody. Tell us quickly about today's story, <laughs> and then I have to say goodbye. Uh, well, <laughs> it's interesting. Uh, there's a lady who organises us to go out for dinner and music. And she texted me that her son is going to play music at a cafe opposite Luna Park. So, of course, I had to go and, uh, and support that. And in that building live friends of mine, uh, um, Melma and Bernie Hammersfeld. So I said, I haven't seen you for a year. Come down to the cafe and we'll hear music and we can see each other. So they did. And they really liked him. He's a gorgeous guy, uh, Ron Kingston. And um, I gave him my card. He gave me his card, and off we went. So uh, Lindy, I saw when I saw that movie at the, their daughter, the Hammersfeld's daughter at the, at the classic, and she said, "Tell." that guy my parents liked his music so much so I sent her the the link and they can they can contact him for work how wonderful and I met him for coffee before I came to you and we've got lots of ideas of what he should do now how? that he's settling in Australia love it absolutely <laughs> wonderful thank you so much and again I thank you <laughs> I know your kids, you've done an amazing job with them and it was lovely to finally meet you. I've heard about you for so many years. <laughs> Thank you.